0: Cocofony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast. We are a triumvirate of Doctor Who fans who each week discuss, digest, digress, and disagree as we talk about our favourite time travelling hero, Doctor Who, and all forms of his adventures, whether on TV, audio, comic strips, animations, novels, action diggers, or even VHS underpants. As the Doctor says in Time and the Ranny, where am I? Who am I? And who are you? So to answer each of those in turn, I'm at home at East Kilbride near Glasgow with a doobie on my head. I'm Kenny Smith. And to answer the final part, I'm going to need a bit of help. Co-conspirator number one, with the shaven head and face, tell us who you are and where you come from. Hello,
1: I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I'm from Paisley, but I currently live in Glasgow.
0: And co-conspirator number two, with the beard and hair, tell us who you are and where you're from.
2: Thank you for inviting me on, Kenny. My name is Tom Harris, and I'm a co-presenter co- in Power of Three. That's it.
0: And you've never done anything else in life apart no, from Power this of No, that's
2: the first thing I've ever done.
0: Yeah.
2: I've got a very, a very mm. empty CV. It's quite embarrassing, actually.
0: Yeah, well, I'll give you some help with writing it later on. Pretend you're a journalist or something. Nah. It might work. Nah, that'd be daft. Right then. Now we can get down to business. We've often spoken about things on the Power of Three, which makes certain members of the team seem like grumpy old men. <coughs> Tom Harris. Originally, I thought it might be quite fun for us to just complain about the things in Doctor Who that we don't like. But then, that's a bit dull and negative. So I thought, let's put a wholly original twist on it. So today, each of us is going to present a couple of things to do with Doctor Who. And we'll play off against each other to convince the third that the thing that we don't like should be eradicated from all of time and space using the oubliette of eternity and consigned to a nowhere place from whence it shall never return. We're talking about Room 103. So, to kick us off, Dave and Tom, you're going to try and convince me what you think should go in to Room 103.
1: Kenny, I would like to choose the the modern tendency amongst certain Doctor Who fans to identify each doctor by their number as if it was their name so you know those those of yourself kind of we grew up we kind of we would talk about the fourth doctor generally more often than not I think we would talk about the if we were talking about each particular doctor we would use the actor's name I remember in the the 90s when I sort of became a an active part of of Doctor Who fandom finally and people would talk about how good Tom was or or Pat or Billy you know we talked about the doctors in very, very sort of familiar terms using the name but latterly a lot of Doctor Who fans now refer to each Doctor, as I say, by their number, as if it's their name. So people will not talk about the the character played by David Tennant as the 10th Doctor. They will call him 10. They don't talk about the character played by Peter Capaldi as the 12th Doctor. They call him 12. And I've even seen references to 4 and to 5 and to 3. And this irritates me beyond belief. I don't know if it's a symptom of of me ageing and becoming slightly grumpier, or if it's just a reaction to something that I think is a little cutesy and a little, you know, it reminds me of when, you know, the the argument used to get when Star Trek fans would say they were called Trekkers and not Trekkies. It puts me in mind of that sort of thing. I think it all started with the song which was played over the end of Christmas Invasion when the Doctor was trying on his new costume for the first time, and the song was called Song for Ten. And I think that was maybe the source of it because before then I can't really remember people that were just using them by numbers. It's sort of, I just find it really cutesy and really Pat, and I think it takes a little bit away from each of them, you know, if you just boil them down to a number, rather than an individual, to kind of slightly allude to another popular series. Yes, it's not number seven, Sylvester McCoy, it's not number eight, it's Paul McGann, it's not number two,
2: it's Patrick Troughton.
0: Tom, what are you going to nominate? Oh dear,
2: this is not going to please either of you or any of the people listening to this podcast. <laughs> My <laughs> nomination for room 103 is sylvester mccoy why am i not
0: surprised what would you like to say about sylvester mccoy why would you like to put him into this place
2: i mean let me add a caveat of course i've never met sylvester I, i understand not just from youtube but from other friends who have met him that he is absolutely lovely and that's great but cast your mind back to our discussion on of on her Majesty's secret service last week whatever you think of that particular film and, whatever, and however stupid you are to listen to David Steele's opinion, there can be no doubt that Lazenby just isn't an actor and never was. And that's that, That's what casts the huge shadow over on Emergency Secret Service. And every time I watch it, I get a bit frustrated at what could have been if they just cast an actor instead of Lazenby. It's the same with Doctor Who from season uh, 24. You know... <laughs> It amazes me. It staggers me that John Nathan Turner, faced with a you know a hostile BBC board and management towards Doctor Who, knew that he needed to up his game. Knew that he needed to do something different from what had gone before. Something that would really catch up people's imagination, get people excited about the show again. And instead, he casts Sylvester McCoy, a man with almost no acting experience. And it showed from the very beginning. I mean, we've talked about Time in the Ranny. I mean, Time in the Ranny, I think, is is the worst thing the BBC has ever broadcast. I don't think it's any redeeming features. The best that can be said of, of McCoy's tenure after that is that some of the subsequent adventures weren't quite as unwatchable. But at its best, it was pretty dire. Of course, that was the period when I stopped watching Doctor Who completely because I was too embarrassed to watch it and, and to admit to people that I watched it. And, I, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, hope, I, I'm assuming Sylvester wouldn't listen to this because I'd feel really bad if he did. But I know I'm not the first person to suggest this. And, and obviously Sylvester himself is aware of this kind of criticism from fandom because when Matt Smith was cast as the Doctor back in 2010 or 2009, whatever it was, the Radio Times, I think it was, ran an interview with him, or it might have been Doctor Magazine, but they ran an interview with him where he expressed great hurt because someone, some commentator had said, oh, I hope Smith doesn't end up like Sylvester McCoy. I don't know exactly what the context of that was, because Smith had quite a long acting CV at that point. And McCoy expressed hurt, but he also expressed familiarity with that criticism. So he knows that in the acting chops, he, he didn't quite cut it. And, and there isn't a single episode that he ever appeared in, including the movie where he was able to act his way out of a paper bag. So I think if I could put Sylvester into room 103, reverse time and cast, oh, let me think, anyone else in the role, then that would make me very happy. Well, so much for keeping the light, eh? I'm just going to bog
0: off. Everyone at home couldn't see the fact that Dave disappeared for about 30 seconds there while Tom was talking from our screens. Both put forward some very strong cases there. Tom, we'll start with yours. Discussing Sylvester McCoy, he is very popular. And to be honest, you like to have something to complain about. And if we didn't have Sylvester McCoy, you would have a hell of a lot less to complain about. That's true. And also, you said anybody else could have been the doctor apart from him. The doctor could have been played by Ken Dodd. Yep. They may have similar teeth, but I think probably Sylvester McCoy is. For your terms, The Lesser of Two Evils. Dave, on the other hand, let's have a look at this. Murray Golding's Song for Ten. That could have been Song for Ten Ant, and part of it could have fallen off at the end when he was writing it. (laughs) But I'm afraid, Tom, Sylvester McCoy does have to stay out, and because of this stupid numbering system, we're going to have to exile people who refer to doctors by numbers to room 103. That's a fair cop. Well, I woke up today.
2: Okay, let's go into round two where I am in the chair. I have the power. I have the power over life and death, which is always as it should be. And I'm going to start with Kenny to name something from Doctor Who lore that should be consigned to the eternal hell of room 103. What do you want taken out of the Doctor Who space time continuum forever?
0: Well, Tom, there's only one real mega strong contender for me right now that really, really grips my poo. I would like to put in, it's a, it's a word that I believe that appears in the Oxford English Dictionary or some other dictionary that's been put in by some do-gooder with no better thing to do. It is the term "hoovian," which I believe is used to describe some Doctor Who fans. Now, for me, the whole point of being a fan of something is that you are a fan. You enjoy it for what it is. Why is there this desperate need to identify and give yourself a term along the lines of Trekker or Trekkie? Why do you need to be something other than a Doctor Who fan? It's quick and easy to say, one syllable, fan, rather than Whovian. The thing is, it's not even derived from another word. For example, you could be called a Hoover because you could suck it all in. It's just not funny. It doesn't have a funny derivation. For example, you could be a Hoover. That would be really funny. You could just, I mean, you could be a hooligan. That's quite funny. Yeah, there's no wit, there's no humour to it. And of course, the thing that really, really, I mean, the three of us come from the West of Scotland and we know what it's like in the West of Scotland where there's this desperation to have a label. You're either a Rangers fan or you're a Celtic fan. And there's this horrible nonsense that leads to so much bigotry and dislike of the other when just because of having a label. Because when I was at school, I was an Aberdeen fan. So the Rangers fans hated me and the Celtic fans hated me. Mm-hmm. And the amount of pelters that I took, because my team were good in those days, was <laughs> ridiculous, all because of this need to have a label. Because they'd say, I'm an Aberdeen fan. And they'd say, all right, but who do you really support? And it's like, no, it's Aberdeen. I couldn't give a damn. If Rangers and Celtic play each other, I want each other to lose. No, for me, Hovien, is just why this desperate need to try and have something. It's an American term. For some reason, it's come back across the Atlantic here. And I believe that in her first press statement, the actress Jodie Whittaker used the word "hoovian" to talk about Doctor Who fans. Where has this come from? It is not a word. It must go in room 103 at once. All hoovians are Doctor Who fans, but not all Doctor Who fans are Whovians.
2: OK, that's a, a, a very persuasive case. Let's see if Mr. Steele can come up with an equally or more persuasive case for his pet hate. Go for it, Davey. My pick is something which
1: has niggled me over the years, but recently has sort of come into focus and borders on, it's becoming almost an obsessive dislike. It's two words. Eric Sabord. Now, Eric was the the script editor for much of the 80s. Doctor Who of, he wrote the visitation for for Peter Davison. Not five, Peter Davison's first Doctor Who series. Then when Anthony Root had to go off to Juliet Bravo or whatever it was, Eric Sabord was offered the the full-time position of script editor. And for me, this is where Doctor Who started to go wrong in the 80s. Eric had a very interesting approach to Doctor Who. He seemed to think that the Doctor wasn't the main character and really shouldn't get terribly much to do. If you watch Peter Davison's stories in order, he's a very fresh, bright, sarcastic, doesn't-suffer-fools sort of Doctor until you get to halfway through time flight when he suddenly becomes Joe Exposition. And he pretty much stays like that until the end of his tenure. There's only a few moments here and there where he gets little character things to do. There's some good bits for him in The Five Doctors, a couple of good bits in front of us, but that's because it was written by Christopher Bidmead, who you know was there for his inauguration. He's Joe exposition right practically up until his final story, when Robert Holmes comes in and his, Robert Holmes is too big a talent for Eric Sabre to ruin. The Doctor gets plenty. You watch any story from Peter Davison's second series, and literally the Doctor's sole function at times, is just to explain to Tegan what's going on. And Peter Davison deserved a lot more. The other thing about Eric Sayward, well, one of the other things about Eric Sayward was his, the slight sort of the nastiness to his writing. I think boy, on by the success of Earthshock, he at times put you know a bit too much of a shall we say, it, an attempt of at being gritty into Doctor Who. It kind of reached his in the Nadir in, in Colin Baker's first series when you know some of the scenes in Attack of the Cybermen and Benjamin and Barros with a lot of blood and people being thrown into acid baths, etc. I think Eric took the wrong lessons from his own work there and thought what people wanted was action movie nastiness when what they really wanted was pace and an exciting story. Another example is Attack of the Cybermen, the first story in Colin Baker's full series, you know, which is completely written around continuity references to a William Hartnell story and a Patrick Troughton story. In fact, two Patrick Troughton stories, because we have the sewers and we have the tombs of the Cybermen. Great actors like... Brian Glover and Maurice Coburn, who die really, really, really horrible deaths. When under any other script editor, it would have been Brian Glover who shot the Cyber Controller and not the Doctor. This was another preoccupation of Eric's. He liked putting guns in the Doctor's hand. He did it in Resurrection of Daleks. He did it in shot. I think he was a, a, He had a very. I think he was a very, very dark-minded individual who was completely wrong for Doctor Who. All of Colin Baker's first series. You can, you know, it's almost a reaction to Caves of Androzani, again, taking the wrong lessons. And then the final story in that series, of course, is Revelation of the Daleks, where the Doctor doesn't join the main action to more than halfway through because Eric is much more interested in writing about other characters. Or was it because Colin and Nicola were needed to rehearse for the pantomime that John Nathan Turner was putting on at the same time? I don't know. The final thing about Eric Sayward is his dialogue. I've got my old copy of the discontinuity guide here. See if I can find some examples from some of the dialogue that went out under Eric, dialogue disasters from Earthshock. No, it could be rough. There's the line from Resurrection of the Daleks about cool spring mountain water. There's that way that in Eric Sayward's scripts, or scripts that Eric's had a hand on, no one really talks like a human being. They talk like some kind of weird, articulate, outer space Shakespeare. And It's one of the things I think that Doctor Who did so well when it came back was that it reacted against that and gave people real, believable dialogue. It's very telling that Eric, when he eventually left, he flounced off in a huff because he had a disagreement with John Nathan-Turner. And I sort of think that maybe their relationship is is the root of a a lot of the problems that Doctor Who had in the 80s because there was this poisonous dynamic right at the centre of the production. And I think it would have been for the benefit of the programme, for John and for Eric and for all of us, if Eric had never been given the script editor's job in the first place.
2: Well, this is a conundrum. I mean, do I put the much used and, to some people, much loved descriptive of a Doctor Who fan into the the never-ending infinity of of Room 103 or put Eric Seward, who I think we all agree was not up to it during his tenure at the programme, but is that enough to consign a writer to... Eternal damnation? I'm not sure. I think on balance, you both made excellent cases, but I think on balance, the world is a better place for having a short name to describe anoraks who go to conventions, even if it doesn't necessarily describe every single fan. And of course, if you put Hoovian into Room 103, where does that leave the universe? You know, would we have to do another round of Room 103 to, to, to dismantle all of the annoying vocabulary that's grown up around the programme? I think on behalf of the three Hoovians who run this show, I think we'll keep Hovians in the real world and say tatty bye to Eric Seward.
0: So over to the Twitter sphere, I asked our listeners who are not Whovians, if we had to put anything Doctor Who related into Room 103, what would it be and why? And I also stressed make it fun. We did get a few replies which were a bit cruel and personal, so we re- won't repeat those here. Yeah, I'm sorry, about that. I'm, we, sorry we about that. I'm sorry about that, Kenny. the
2: personal ones to
0: talk. <laughs> I, know, I spent a lot of time sending those tweets. <laughs> All those. <laughs> so set up. I'm going to put these tweets together in groups with threes and ask you to put your, which one you want to put into room 103. So, Dave, here's your first batch from David Cherry. We have the human Dalek hybrid. They had the chance to make the coolest thing in the world, a horror show or tentacles walking about and talking with more menace and emotion than a Dalek. But what did we get? A New York businessman with some sausages hanging off his face and a comedy eye. Catherine, who is at a girl with a gun, Mike said a tad serious, but too much bickering between TARDIS teams and multi doctor stories. One of the reasons I like Sirens of Time so much is because it was nice to hear the Doctors looking out for each other, appreciating their different strengths and working together. And Colin Brake, who actually would have been the script editor in season 27 of Doctor Who if it had gone ahead, said lists, top fives, top tens, best this, best that, whatever, just stop it. I like Doctor Who, full stop. Some days I like some bits more than others, but most of all, I like whichever Doctor I'm reading, watching, listening to, or occasionally writing about. So, Dave, what would you say to that? Who would you this exile? Is,
1: this is not difficult at all. Now, with all due respect to Colin Brake, I'm a big fan. I remember reading one of his, his Doctor Who books. Was it Escape Velocity? Was that one of his? Can't remember. Yes. A lot of time for Colin Brake. He knows what he's talking about as far as his, his job and all that. He's a good guy. But come on, Colin. Making lists is all the fun. It's great. And Catherine, I'm sorry, but the the bickering between TARDIS teams when in multi-doctor stories. Is the highlight of these sort of stories for me. Um actually the it was at the end of the beginning, the recent one that, that wound up, the main range, had some really charming scenes. All of the, the different TARDIS crews met up. They actually all got on very well. It was very, very, it was very, very nice. But I do like the bickering. I think it's amusing because we love the characters so. And this isn't just because I know them in real life. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick David Cherry's choice of um of of the, the dialect hybrid because it was bogging. <laughs> I can go straight in. <laughs>
0: Love it. Tom, here's a trio for you. First one's from Dan Squire, who says, Auntie Beeb's bulky razor machine, her rubber stamp with no further interest and rolls of withdrawn, deaccessioned and junk stickers. Why? Because I'd really like to watch The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. Uh Ian McArdle says, received fan wisdom. Look how the enemy of the world went up in people's estimations once we all actually saw all of it. And Nikki Hutchison says, the Sladeen. Just everything about them.
2: <laughs> well, those are three very good choices. And I'm very tempted to put the Slothian in because I agree. I think they're just shit. Oh, they're hilarious. They fart. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's great. I think, you know, if you took a poll among all of the universe, I think most Hoovians would agree that the BBC multi-eraser, is without a doubt. I mean it did cross my mind that actually to nominate that in the first round, this this tendency of the BBC to commit sacrilege and destroy history on the you know BBC history and Doctor Who history. So that's that's a kind of given really isn't it? It's such a given that everyone regrets that then that I don't think I'll even put that into room one or three because it's so beyond a parlor game it is so it is the ultimate evil in the universe and i think most of us can agree with that so there's no point you know let's just leave that alone i think i'll go for received fan wisdom because because they often disagree with me so that's a major minus point point. and yeah there is you remember when before we even saw a glimpse of a celestial toy maker it was kind of held up as this great, iconic, amazing first Doctor episode. And we were all looking forward to see it. And then we saw, I don't know how many episodes of it are, have survived, but it really is shit. And I expect if we'd seen all of it, it would have been just as shit. But, but nevertheless, fan wisdom was that, oh, this is wonderful and great. No, it wasn't. And I, I, I suspect that can ring true with a whole number of, of missing episodes. And we'll only find out if one day they're actually returned to us. But fans are generally wrong, I find. So that's what I'm putting in one or 103.
1: So Kenny, your choices are from Joe Castles. The notion that it must be a movie of the week is obviously talking about TV episodes, modern episodes, I like. think. Big cinematic stuff can be fun, but so can small intimate stories. Throwing in the kitchen sink every week sometimes smacks of desperation, okay. Twitter user Bookit very succinctly says 80s incidental music mm. and finally John Ryan says Michael Grade.
0: <laughs> well to be honest this is actually quite an easy one for me. Dealing with 80s incidental music I'm a huge fan of synthesized music Pitch up Boys, Eraser and just even like 90s electronic dance and even up to today with Tovlo or Tuvalu to be quite pronounced. I love synthesized music so there is no way that I'm letting Keith McCulloch, Peter Howell, Dominic Glenn and the rest go into room 103. of Cells, the notion that it must be a movie of the week. Big cinematic stuff. I quite like that. I like the fact that, you know, you've got, you can go for these ridiculous titles like Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Great title because it says that it's a Ron Seale story and it gives you that. So our final option there is Michael Grade who took Doctor Who off air and sacked Colin Baker. So for me... Colin had so much more potential to show what he could do. We've seen it, or we've heard it, on Big Finish. So I think that Michael Grade has to go into room 103 right now. No arguments. Gone.
1: Right. Finally, then, to wind up, I have to ask Tom and Kenny what they're putting into room 103 now. Let's go first with Kenny. Kenny, what is your your choice? What's your second choice?
0: Okay. my second choice is the Doctor Who Experience in Cardiff management team. Now, did either of you go to the Doctor Who Experience in Cardiff? No. Nope. No. This was perfect. Here you've got a custom-made facility, a permanent Doctor Who exhibition space down in Rothlock, literally 150 meters away from the BBC studios. Inside It's all beautifully made, custom built, Doctor Who exhibition space. Everywhere you turn, there's River Song shoes. There's a Cyberman head. Bessie's there. There's a Dalek made out of Lego. And this is just in the entrance foyer where you go and get your tickets. And as you go through, there's an interactive zone for your team members who introduce you to it all. And you've got your act out part in a story. You can join in. Peter Capaldi's on the screen guiding you through a story where you get to operate the console, hurry through there's zones with Weeping Angels, bits with Daleks. And it's fantastic interact stuff where the little kiddies can scream. It made my Katie scream. She'd blouse out after she saw a smiler. And you go around this and you do this part of the story. And then when it's all done, you emerge into the Hartnell console room and there you have tons of Doctor Who props around. There's console rooms, monsters, everything you could want to see, costumes, even bits of torchwood, And you can go around this wonderful space, look at everything up close in detail, look at the Emperor Dalek model, to see the detail that went into all these things. Look at the costumes, look how detailed the stitching is and the waistcoats and things like that. Enjoy all this stuff. And then it failed. Why did something like this, which was absolutely perfect, fail? for Doctor Who fans. It really was fantastic. It's a brilliant shop as well. We had pop-up exhibitions like Target book covers, original artworks, things like that. And we had this fantastic space, but surely this sort of thing should have worked. You could have made constant events in there. You could have had signings. You could have had come and meet the doctor or here's like a writer's workshop. Even if it's, you know, here's just like Mark Gatiss pop along for an hour or two, do a quick talk, sign a few autographs and off he pops. Something like this should have worked. Doctor Who is a massive global brand and yet it failed and this exhibition closed, everything's been removed and now the site has been cleared and it left the Welsh government with a £1 million debt as well because it just didn't work. So for me, the people who are responsible for managing this completely failed Doctor Who fans, not just in Wales, not just in Britain, but all over the world, put them in room 103.
1: Interesting. Very passionate. Hmm. Okay. Tom, what's your second pick?
2: Right. I came to my second nomination in a sort of roundabout way because my first instinct was to nominate the tendency for the whole of the universe and various Hoovians to use the wrong titles for William Hartnell, early William Hartnell stories like so. We call... 100,000 BC, An Unearthly Child, when that was actually only the name of one of the the episodes, one of the four episodes. And that really annoys me in in a sort of petty sort of way, which fits exactly into our USP here. But actually, it's when I was thinking about that, I came up with my actual nomination. And I am going to nominate the very first Doctor Who story, An Unearthly Child, right? Bear with me, bear with me here. Now, I know you can't really just put three quarters of a story into room 103. But I am convinced that the producers made a mistake by not bringing the Daleks into the very, very first adventure. I think it would have been a far more, I mean, in the long term, it didn't make any difference because the Daleks Captured everyone's imagination and the show took off as a result, and everything. It worked out fine. But I do think it was a mistake for the producers to think that after an amazing first episode that really kind of challenged you and made you think and captured everyone's attention, a, a remarkable first episode introducing the TARDIS and the doctor and Susan and the two teachers into the TARDIS. I mean, it's just a great, great story. But it was only a quarter of the story. And then the next three quarters of the story was just a bit shit where we go back to, to Caveman days and it really wasn't that interesting. I watched it again quite recently and it's it's dull, dull, dull and, and the first episode is so exciting and so different that can you imagine what would have happened if when the TARDIS had taken off it had landed on Scarrow instead of Prehistoric Earth and they were suddenly involved at the end of the second episode challenged by Adalek, and then can you imagine that would have been an amazing start for the show. No, the start that we did have was fine. It was okay. It did, but I think it was a lost opportunity, and I hate lost opportunities. So my nomination is one hundred thousand BC. That's very interesting talk. <laughs> very very interesting. I think you have to. I think you've
1: been a bit too harsh on the production team. They were obviously in the early days. They were making it by the skin of their teeth, by the, the seat of their pants, and feeling their way. And Toby Haydock's excellent Too Much Information podcasts have recently covered the first few episodes that were ever made. So they're worth checking out listeners if you haven't done. And he talks about the struggles they had getting everything together. Who's to say that the cavemen are indeed on prehistoric earth? Perhaps the TARDIS went to Scarrow immediately and they're prehistoric Caleds and Thals. Who can say? I have to say, Kenny, you know, the flaw in your argument is there right at the start. I say I've never been to Cardiff. I keep threatening to drop in and visit Will Brooks, but maybe that'll happen one day. Someone obviously thought it was a good idea somewhere that Doctor Who was a big enough brand that people would flock from all over the world to visit Cardiff to, to go to the, this big Doctor Who experience. And I certainly thought it would be nice, but it's just not practical. It's much, much easier to travel to somewhere like London or even Birmingham to, for such a thing. And obviously, we understand that Wales is the hub of you know of, of Doctor Who production. So, you know, the reason it failed, I think, is just basically because they, they chose to make it in Wales. They, they probably overthought over that Doctor Who would do so well. So I'm, I'm in the horns of a dilemma here because... Um, I have to pick one of these to go in because I don't think the management team are at fault, but I'm also very, very fond of the first Doctor Who story. But, you know, thinking about it, and I'll be honest, it's not something I had considered earlier. If the Daleks had rocked up much a bit earlier, you know, a couple of weeks earlier than they did, that would have been a real demonstration of what the programme can do. It would have been balls out. It would have been full on. It would have been very, very brave. Rather, than maybe perhaps the safe option of just going with some cavemen. So, as much as I like the initial Doctor Who story, I'm going to agree with Tom, and we can put 100,000 BC into room 103. And the management team were not at fault. It, it was the whoever had the, the brilliant idea to have the exhibition in Wales in the first place. Amazing scenes from the, the former member for Glasgow
2: Cat there. Very inappropriate <laughs> scenes from the member for Glasgow Cat <laughs> We'll
0: run through a few more that I've got on Twitter. Dave, here's a triumvirate for you. Fitness Geek UK says DWB in the 1980s. I really feel that certain Uber fans got too much of an influence from that and it really seems like it's the start of the still ongoing trend of a minority of fans believing in entitlement. Luke Foster says the highly unconvincing pterodactyl props that attack the Doctor and Sarah in Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Pete Murphy says the Sonic Screwdriver.
1: Well Sonic Screwdriver it's a it's a canny bit of merchandising for the modern age it's perhaps been overused and certain stories i remember a couple of matt smith stories when i was just like oh god enough with the sonic screwdriver you can't get rid of the sonic screwdriver detect the, the dinosaurs invasion dinosaurs are not what the are about you can't criticize it for those don't be silly so i have to say i think that dwb and the uber fans at the time there's, there's a massive great book about human psychology to be written about Doctor Who, Uber fans and the people that wrote and produced that fanzine in the, the 80s and the 90s. I've still got a few of them, they make fascinating reading. I don't to risk as being done for libel, so I won't mention any names, but there was some severe problems being worked out in that fanzine and DWB, as far as John Nathan Turner and Colin Baker and Andrew Cartmell and all of them try to do their very best to keep the programme going, DWB was poison. So yes, DWB and its associates, they can go straight into room 103.
0: Tom, here's a trio for you. Blaine Coughlin says, The horrible quake neck pieced light entertainment style end credits imposed in series four. At least these were amended to the more sophisticated slower cinema style credits on the DVDs of The Next Doctor and The End of Time, but not series four though. Mike Higgins says, The Weeping Angels, I'm a grown ass man and statues still give me the heebie jeebies. Guess that's why I'm a radical lefty. And Mark Brousher says, Doctor Who jokes, and Mel's outfits. Oh, and Mel, this will be a tough one for you, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a difficult one, actually, I have to think about this. Well, first of all,
2: I'm not quite sure what it means by the light entertainment endings for Series 4. I presumably means new Series 4, not classic Series 4. Yeah, and speeded up credits. Oh, <laughs> was
1: is that what
2: it was? Right. right. Uh, well, I don't even noticed that, so I, I don't care enough about that. The man who nominated Weeping Angels because they scare him, does he understand what Doctor Who's actually about? You know, or, or let's put the Daleks into Room 103 because they <laughs> make me really scared. What? <laughs> no, the, the Weeping Angels is, is one of the best inventions of of New Era or Who and, and that is definitely not going to... End- now let's see, that that's conundrum because that only leaves us with one option. Now I nominated Sylvester McCoy and the reason I nominated Sylvester McCoy is because I didn't have time to nominate Sylvester McCoy and Mel. When I heard that Bonnie Langford, Bonnie Langford had been cast in Doctor Who, I couldn't believe it. And it comes back to my earlier argument that, you know, this is a show that was, you know, the BBC executives were looking for an excuse to cancel it. And what does the almighty genius john nathan turner do he casts bonnie langford as the main i i, I am still obviously as you can tell angry yes. about every decision that john nathan turner ever made especially <laughs> in, his, in, the, in, the, in the years of his tenure but casting bonnie langford as the main companion was a sh- shocking act for for any producer. I mean, the best thing that John Nathan-Turner could have done before season 26 would have been resigned and the (laughs) programme might actually have survived for a little bit longer with someone else at the helm. So it's not really Bonnie Langford's fault that John Nathan-Turner cast her, but, you know, at least she's still alive, can still blame her. So she goes into Room 103, absolutely she does. (laughs)
0: Dave, here's your next three. Oh big God, water! Yeah, big finish. Writer Roland Moore says Trouton's strange eye bags and some of the animations. John Hughes says the Cyber Brig. Enough said, surely. And Simon Smith says fans who whinge endlessly without humour. It's all lovable daft stuff if you look hard enough. If you simply can't, simply ignore the bits you don't like. There's enough other stuff.
1: Well, we're having nepotism here straight away. It's, it's, it's John's pick for Cyber Brig absolutely excruciating it was probably meant as a tribute to nicholas courtney but i thought it was tone deaf and awful so yes get cyber break to fuck
0: (laughs) (laughs) right tom here's three more for you and then dave there's a final three okay (laughs) martin kenor suggests the sixth doctor's coat Alan, who is at Cleverest Person, says the pawn's not minding that their newborn baby's been abducted. Instead of panicking or doing everything possible to try and find her, they go on another adventure with the doctor, one where they have to help a child escape nightmares. They don't even mention their abducted baby. Although I like the fact Stephen Moffat said in DWM that he completely dropped the ball there and regrets the whole storyline. And finally, Lady Geek says Peter Capaldi's guitar pretentious. Oh, I hate gets. the guitar. Right. Okay, well, it's not
2: going to be the pawns and the baby because I think Stephen has rightly taken responsibility for that. So that kind of lets it off the hook a little bit. I think that this whole exercise is about punishing those crimes that have not been acknowledged. That lets it off the hook. I liked Peter Capaldi's guitar. I'm sorry. I I, I did. I remember when he came in on the top of that tank playing his guitar, I I just grinned. I just loved it. I thought it was very funny. I, thought, I almost gave up. No, I, I just thought it was exactly what the audience was looking for. And and I loved Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. I loved him in that story. I just thought that was great. So that's not going in Room 103. And anyone who disagrees with me is wrong. And obviously that leaves Colin Baker's coat. What the hell? You know, there's a theme coming up here in my nomination, isn't there? What the hell was John <laughs> Nathan Turner thinking? I mean... This was his first job as producer, wasn't it? And his only job as producer. Pretty um, much, yeah. This was a man who was tone deaf to what his potential audience actually wanted. He had no idea. Never put a fan in charge of a show. It, it was just bloody awful. And it was it was unfair to Colin Baker as well, who I loved as the Doctor and still love as the Doctor. So, yeah, okay, put the Six Doctors quote in, but that's just a proxy for you-know-who. <laughs>
0: going to have our final three contenders to go in. Right, Hey, no pressure. Right, so the first one's from Brendan A. Jones who says, Terence Dudley, he just didn't get the series, and ranges from being inept to awful. Four to Doomsday can stay, but written by David Fisher. Trevor Smith who says, The Doctor in Distress record, and also The Doctor Who 50th after-party fiasco. And finally, Dave, the third one you have to consider is from Paul Smy who says, Parasite by Jim Mortimer, the new adventure. Not only the worst new adventure, but quite possibly the worst book I've ever read. There right. is nothing good about. Three hundred pages of drivel. It does cure insomnia, though.
1: So to tackle each of those in order, I think Terence Dudley gets a hard gets a hard time. You know, there's a lot of good stuff in his career, and his Doctor Who stories. They might not be earth shatteringly original, but they're all very watchable. They're all very well played. Black Orchid features the lab from Gangsters, so there's no way in heck I'm going to put that in. Doctor in Distress is excruciating, but it raised money for cancer research, which is a subject close to our hearts, so in that regard. And also, I really enjoyed the after-party thing after the 50th anniversary. It was a riot. It was was chaos. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of familiar, friendly faces, just like what you want any party to be whether or not you enjoy a party depends on, on your attitude and i had a great time at that one which leaves us you know jim mortimer's parasite and i have to say when kenny and i did our new adventures episodes i'm pretty sure that was one of the ones that i mentioned that i never read because his reputation was just was so bad so it's a bit of a cheat because i haven't read it and i don't have the, the direct experience of it but no the jim mortimer book that can be our final entry to room 103
0: so listeners remember to follow us on twitter we're at power of three pod that's the number three and we have a website power of three pod.com again with the number three where you can find past episodes and some articles we also have our facebook page so please feel free to pop by like the page and share your thoughts on our episodes gents have you enjoyed consigning stuff to room 103 today
2: oh, i've loved it it's been great. yes very much this
1: has been a lot of fun this has been you know I'm, i might I might even have calmed down now actually after tom's initial suggestion well. <laughs>
0: well lovely so thanks very much for your time as always gentlemen and look forward to reconvening next week
2: yes thanks for the chat guys it's great when Hoovians get together i think the whole of the universe celebrates when that's whenever we send a, a, another episode into the ether so thanks very much
1: yeah, thank you, Kenny. It's been, it's been a good laugh, apart from all the, the tears and all the, the holes I've punched in my living room walls I, as I listened to, to Tom make his, his observations. But um, thank you for listening, everyone. Hope we haven't upset you too much with some of our choices. Do join us again. Kenny, what are we going to play out with today?
0: Well, it seems appropriate that we should finish with the whole thing that this episode is based on, the idea of Room 101 from a little-known book by a guy called George Orwell and it is called 1984. And in it, the Room 101 is where there's lots of fears and things like rats and stuff like that. <laughs> which actually, this actually might quite work as a TV series. We should maybe pitch this. Obviously the studio, so that's why I changed Room 101 to Room 103. But we're gonna play out with Room 101 by the Eurythmics, which is taken from the 1984 film, 1984, which of course starred John Hurt as Winston Smith. And it sounds something like this.